0: I want to introduce to you, my former college pastor is sitting right in front of me, and somehow I've aged quicker than him. I'm not sure how it happens, but uh, Kurt still looks as fit and young and vibrant as ever, uh, and I'm thrilled to get to hear him. Kurt and I were in 2005 we were sitting at a church planting conference some of you have heard this story but we were sitting at a church planting conference Uh, we were tasked by valley church out there Uh, god was giving this open door to kind of start this new thing here on this property and uh it was so fun to be out there with kurt and we heard you know speakers from all over the place telling all these different things and god moved the holy spirit moved by his word by his spirit and by two believers and starbucks napkins and really a lot of what has gone on at this church last almost seven years now was birthed out of that so uh, he's been a partner in ministry to me he's still a a mentor and a friend gosh i sound like i'm setting him up for something huge but kurt come on up here before i just make a complete buffoon of myself so (laughs) give it up for kurt though
1: yeah so be careful if dave carlson ever asks you to go out for coffee that's all i gotta say you know watch uh watch what's going on I'd like for you to do something for me. Would you take out your wallet? Wait, no. We haven't had the offering yet, have we? No, I want you to take out your wallet and pull out a, a picture that you have there. Or I guess in this digital age, pull out your iPhone and just whatever picture you got there, show it to somebody next to you, okay? Do you have any pictures in your wallet? Do you have a picture? Now, if you don't have an iPhone, kids, that's okay. I'm not, I'm for... You know, what would you have a picture of? And turn to somebody you didn't come in with today and show them the picture or tell them about it, okay? Somebody you didn't come with. Just just, just say, if I had a picture, this is what it would be of. All right, have you gotten to show your picture yet? Anybody got a picture they're just dying to show? I'll love look at it. All right. <laughs> All right. Hey, kids, thanks so much. I hope you saw your picture in your dad's wallet or uh, uh, on his phone, something like that. We're going to let you guys go now, okay? So kids, we're going to dismiss you at this time, and I think you know who you are. Uh, Of course, you're welcome to stay as well. So about a year and a half ago, we moved in uh, from our nice, quiet neighborhood uh, here by Neighborhood Bible Church up near Valley Church where I serve. The first week we were there, we had helicopters flying over and SWAT teams going door to door. We happened to move in just before that Kaiser Permanente triple homicide uh, happened. That guy was uh, eventually, that that scenario ended three blocks from my house. So that was kind of an exciting time. What happens when uh, those kinds of things uh, go about is you learn, you get to know your neighbors. And so uh, I got to know one of my neighbors. I'm going to see if I can advance this. We're going to have to come back to that, because I don't know what that is. but, but uh, and, and, and I found out that one of my neighbors has a vintage 1963 Shelby Cobra. Seven liter engine, zero to 60 in 4.5 seconds. No heaters, no wipers, no radio. This baby is built for speed. He would out there every Saturday, in fact, just about five days a week, he's out there waxing that thing, taking it apart, putting it back together again. I mean, it's an object of of just a devotion for him. And everybody in the neighborhood knows that he loves this Shelby Cobra. Now, when you're excited about something, when you're passionate about something, it's pretty easy to tell, right? Uh, You you know, you have this uh, sense of excitement. You know about it. You know the, the details. We've got 49ers fans. I know Ron is a big Niners fan. Yeah, all right. When you're a fan of something, you just kind of like, I, I can't wait to tell people about it. And this, this guy's out there. And, and what he does is, now he's sold his Cobra, and he's, he's bought another new car. It's a, about a 1966 Mustang. And he's working on that, and he's restoring it. And he's out there, he's taking this junk heap, and he'll turn it into this, this thing of beauty. This this amazing work that he's excited about, and uh, and and that and that devotion is something that we can all relate to. Now I have to share a picture with you that's uh, near and dear to my heart. Uh, this is October twenty ninth, uh, two thousand six, and uh, this was our pre launch service uh, here at uh, Neighborhood Bible Church, and you can see there's. Uh, uh, folks who weren't there, uh, who are here now, which is totally exciting, and there are people who are there who are not here now. And uh, uh, I just want to say that uh, this little girl, these two kids, and hiding there behind Tegan, uh, it's kind of hard to see, are my four daughters. And they would love to be here today, and my wife would love to be here today. They are now deep in ministry at, at their home church. Uh, the triplets had their sweet 16th birthday party, uh, if you can believe that, uh, yesterday. And so we're all getting older, uh, is what there is to say. But when something is near and dear in your heart, and as Dave said, uh, the, 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 the dreams that we had and the dreams that, that Family Bible Church had and the faith that uh, was, was necessary to take a step into what's happening today and that there's, there's a passion, there's an energy, there's a, there's a level of engagement and involvement that is so different than, than, uh, than somebody who's casual or somebody who's just kind of um, uh, not very invested. My, 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 my premise this morning is the same way that you feel about those pictures of the loved ones in your wallet or on your iPhone or, or the, the same kind of devotion, is the kind of way God feels about us. And then take that and multiply it times a hundred, a 1, thousand, that this love relationship that, that we sang about, that we, that, we, that we looked at, is the same way God feels towards you. And, and the scriptures talk about it over and over and over again. And, and I have to ask myself the question, well, why does God have to say it so many times? In so many different ways. And I think the reason is because we tend not to believe Him. We, we tend rather to think things like, well, how could that possibly be true? How, how could God really love me that much? And this series that you're in, this invitation to believe God, this step of yes, this willingness, this desire to follow God where he's going and to, and to trust him for what he's saying. That he longs for people to know that though we're in trouble, though we're broken, though we're enslaved, that God has said, no, I've got something so much better, so much bigger, so much higher than that for you. And we tend not to believe it. And time and time again, God intervenes. God invites us to come along with him. So... Uh, uh, I had the opportunity to listen to last week's message, and, and again, as, as I think it was Ben, was that last week? Ben Palm? Yeah, so it was a great message. Ben kind of went through what we see in the Old Testament, is this, this series of enslavement freedom, enslavement freedom, enslavement freedom, and, and that, that pattern goes over and over again. But the message that goes through all of it is this, this message of God's love for us. We see in the creation that God created the world, and then he saved Noah and his family through the flood. God chose Abraham. And, and he revealed God's love and plan and purpose to the world through the children of Israel. The Israelites went to Egypt, but again, as we saw, they were enslaved there, but then God used them. Uh, God used his, his mighty work among Moses to deliver them. So there was the exodus, then we saw this period of conquest where the people were looking for God to work. They would follow him into battle. Sometimes they would win. Sometimes they would lose. But then this period of judges where they would win and they would be happy and they would be following God and then they would fall away. And God rose up these judges, Samson, Deborah, uh, all the way uh, through then to this time of the kings. And then the kings were good. They were bad. They were ugly. They were you know everywhere in between. And then we saw Saul, David, and Solomon. And then the, the kingdom split. We had Israel in the north and Judah in the south and these various kings that came through. And the whole time, God would send kings and prophets and saying, God loves you, follow Him. Don't follow after your, your trust in armies or your trust in kings. Don't follow after pagan deities and, and that kind of thing and the, and the idolatry of the day. Well, Israel was destroyed uh, in the northern kingdom, and in the southern kingdom then, Judah was destroyed. And God, again, used this as a way of disciplining, of, of, of bringing them about to remind them of his great love. The exiles returned after those were destroyed, and, and uh, God allowed them to, to, uh, to rebuild Ezra and Nehemiah. And then finally, this period of silence came about. 400 years later, then Jesus came onto the scene. And so today I want to look at this little, little, uh, maybe not so well-known guy of Zephaniah. And if you turn in your Bibles to Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1, it's in the Minor Prophets, so that means go to Psalms and turn right. If you get to Malachi, you've gone too far. Uh, it's after Habakk- Habakkuk, before Haggai, and, then, uh, and hopefully you can find it there. I discovered uh, Zephaniah one time because somebody wrote me one of those cards, just had a little verse on it. And then I read this verse and I said, wow, that's a great verse. I put it up on my wall. But it was, but it was another thing to begin to study what God's word has to say and in this whole idea of God's love for us. And so um, I want to put it in context for you. This whole idea of Zephaniah. Zephaniah one one says... And the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Ged- Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. Now, most of us, when we're reading along in our Bible, we just got to <laughs> blow right over that, right? Like, what does that mean? That doesn't mean anything. But, but here, it's actually really important. Because this guy was the great, great grandson of Hezekiah. Now, if you're a Jew, you'd go, oh, Hezekiah, one of the awesome kings of Israel. I mean, he was the guy who it says... He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so there was no one like him. Among all the kings that came after him, or all those who were before him, for he clung to the Lord. So this is, this is um, Zephaniah's great, great, great grandfather. He was like, the, the, the you know beside David, one of the greatest kings ever. But, as it often happens, we've talked about this cycle of, you've got a great king, then his son Manasseh came along, he was bad, and then after him, there was Ammon, and he was even worse. And this was a period of, of, of idolatry, and the people of Israel wandered away from God. And they, they got involved in this, this, uh, this idol worship and evil, and so uh, it, it, was, it was an awful thing. So Zephaniah 1.1 then goes on and says, Son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah... Now again, another high point. So Hezekiah here, Josiah here, and you get these two awesome kings. And if you study through the story of, of, of Josiah, this guy was an awesome reformer. And in that in that thing of trusting the Lord, he had, he had uh, gone in and they'd had a church cleanup day. I guess you guys had a church work day here yesterday, right? I mean, the place looks awesome. It looks great. Well, they had one of those. And as they were cleaning up the, the temple, one of the, one of the high priests found a scroll. <laughs> and it was... It was the law. It was the Old Testament. It was the Pentateuch, and and King Josiah read through it and was so touched by God's word that he repented and he fasted and he said, "God, we're so far from what you want." And he went through and and the book of um, of Second Kings tells us his story. He went through and he like uh, he he cleaned out the the idol worship and he and he actually put to death the uh, the the false prophets and the priests that were leading people astray. I mean, he was so passionate that, that this was, was going to happen. Uh, his desire was to see this reformation come about. And that was right about the same time as, Hezekiah, uh, as Zephaniah. So here are these two guys. One's a king and one's a prophet, and they're wanting the same thing. And so you've got like hearts that are calling God's people back to the right kind of mindset, the right kind of thing to happen. Alright, so, that's Zephaniah. Now, let me just give you a a quick uh, uh, overview, and this is all intro to this one verse we're going to take a look at. If you're following along in your outline, you can see there, number one is a reason to repent. A reason to repent. Chapter 1, Zephaniah, verse 2. I will completely remove all things from the faces of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast, I will remove birds of the sky and fish of the sea, and the ruins among the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the earth. Wow, that's pretty harsh. I mean, that is big time. And what, and what God is saying is, here's the reason to repent, because I will come back. I will call the world to justice. The book of Zephaniah contains more references to the phrase, the day of the Lord, than any other Old Testament book. And it's this looking forward to God doing something spectacular from God who has been, uh, who created the world, who's been active in it, but who has not shown his holy power. He says, don't worry, it's coming. Sometimes we live in the world today, you know, in fact, the New Testament says, oh, where are the signs of his coming? Yeah, things keep going just as they always have, you know, the world's going to hell in a hand carton, And that's, you know, that's okay because that's, you know, that's all there is. Well, Zephaniah says, no, 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 slow down. God is going to stretch out his hand against Judah, against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So Zephaniah was saying, take this seriously. There is a God, and you will be held accountable. The order of destruction listed in Zephaniah 1, 2, and 3 is exactly the opposite order of how they're created in Genesis chapter 1. So Zephaniah just walks through, (laughs) gonna take that out, (laughs) gonna take that out, (laughs) gonna take you out. So God is holy. God has this holy standard, and He wants to see us understand that. Now, flip over to chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Here He calls the nation back to, back to Him. Gather yourself. Yes, gather, O oh nation, without shame, before the decree takes effect. So what, what, what God is saying through Zephaniah is that He's saying, I want you to return. Oh man, I've got so much better things for you. Rather than living in this this cheap imitation of real life. I want you to really understand. I want you to return the ark. I want you to return the, the celebration. I want you to return to the joy of knowing God. And that's exactly what happens. I mean, Josiah re- uh, re-institutes the, fe- the feast and the Passover and all these things that have been lost. And it's this time of great celebration and this, this, this re- um, uh, what do you want to call it? It's like a revival among the people of Israel. And again, he's saying the same kind of things the other prophets are saying. The, Isaiah is saying the same thing. Amos is saying the same thing. All these guys are calling the nation back to Israel. And as we, and as we see the Old Testament, what we see is a picture of our own hearts, don't we? We see this, this, this cycle of, hey, things are going great. I don't really think I need God. We turn away from God. Our hearts get hard. We fall into apathy. We kind of fall down like this, and then God allows something to come into our lives, and this, this time of repentance. And it's right there at that choice, place where we have a choice. We can either say, yes, God, things are tough right now. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to allow you to refine me and make me and turn back to you. Or we can just keep straight on going, right? We can keep going into that. And one of the tools that Satan uses in that crossroads is the sense of shame. The sense of, oh, you're no good. How could God ever love you? Notice that it says, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, oh, nation, without shame. And so part of it is there's this idea of I'm so hardened that I don't even care. That, that notion that before our sin, what's, what Satan does is he takes away uh, uh, any thoughts of sin. You know, I'm, I'm not ashamed of what I'm doing, right? I'm kinda, and then after sin, he maximizes it and heaps it on us. And God says, I don't want you to live in either one of those two extremes. We'll see where God wants us to live a little bit later on in this. All right, so now we've seen the reason to repent. Notice then the next thing. Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 3. Here, here's God's answer. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth, who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. So here's this answer. Seek the Lord hum, with humility, with obedience, and with righteousness. This is what God, God has in mind for His people. Zephaniah calls the humble of the land to, 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 to seek after Him, to look, to try to find that even more. Anyone who's in the land who's humble enough to look to God, they should do it. These same three conditions are what we find in other familiar passages. Micah 6, eight. He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. Again, 2 Chronicles 7.14, very familiar themes, written by other people, but God's got one message, humility, obedience, and trust. That's what He wants of us. He wants us to live in that land. He wants us to live in that world. Now, if He's calling the humble to do that, what does He have in mind for those who are hardened? I think he's got the same thing in mind. He's got the same thing in mind for you or for me. Regardless of where you are in your spiritual journey today, God's got those same three things in mind. Be humble, be obedient, and follow after his ways and his plans. We could go through this room this morning and tell stories of when we've tried to do it our own way, couldn't we? And, you know, we've got the scars to prove it. But God says, no, no, come along my way. I want to show you how I do that. And then this idea of humility. Man, sometimes when we dig our heels in and we say, "Okay, I know I'm guilty, but I'm just going to kind of, you know, pretend I'm not." In the book of Ezekiel, uh, God gives this picture of that same kind of idea, of of uh, the tragedy of a of a young child who's abandoned, left out to the to to the uh, elements to to die, and somebody comes along and rescues her and raises her. And and she's given every privilege. She's famous for her beauty and for her intelligence. In Ezekiel 16, 15, uh, Ezekiel says, but you trusted your beauty and played the harlot because of your fame. And what he's saying is, that's like the nation of Israel. That's like us. When we take all these things and we take them for granted and we don't return back to the Lord and say, Lord, it's 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 your work in me. Your plan for me. You've got something much better for me. I've... Um, Got a friend who found a 1963 ford falcon convertible beautiful beautiful car but it was a mess it was a rusted heap and he took that thing and he restored it and uh uh it's red it's got a white top he went through and just really really built this beautiful car now imagine if you will if my friend's 16 year old son comes and says hey dad can i borrow the car yeah, right, uh-huh, sure. No, no, really, Dad, I'll drive carefully. I'll just, I'm just going to run down to In-N-Out, get a burger, and come back. And the dad says, okay, son, go ahead. I'm going to give you the keys to my precious car. I've worked on it for 10 years, you know, to get this thing going. And he gives the son the key. He drives down to In-N-Out, and while he's there, he sees a bunch of his buddies. You know, they've ridden their skateboards over to In-N-Out. Right, uh, and they see this car, and they're like, "Dude, this car is awesome, man! How fast can it go? What does it look? How? what is it, you know, on the freeway? Come on!" And he's like, "No, no, I can't take it for no, no. Come on, let's go, let's go!" And so he piles all of his kids in. They're down there on El Camino, and uh, and somebody pulls up in a 1963 Shelby Cobra, and says, "Hey, how about a race?" And he says, "No." And then he says, "Yeah." And then he races, and. Uh, flips on a corner, rolls, and and two of the kids in the car die, and the car's total. Now, the place where this story stops becoming fiction and is fact is that happened to a friend of Dave and mine's son uh, about six months ago. Uh, the tragedy of a lost life, the tragedy of trust broken. And, and here's the reason for the story. The reason for the story is... When God gives us grace, and gives us a new life, and gives us the, the, the joy of knowing Him, and then we turn away from that, it's that same picture. That same idea of here's a little bit of light, here's a little bit of opportunity, here's a new life, here's the freedom from slavery that Ben talked about last week, here it is. And then what we do is we go back into that again, it's like throwing that all away, And again, some of you have been through that cycle. You know, I wish we could say the day we come to know Jesus, it's up and to the right, right? It's just awesome from there on out. But sometimes what we see is this this pattern, and this pattern of destruction that happens. Well, in chapter 2, verse uh, 4, again, uh, Zephaniah announces that judgment's coming. They've gone through this cycle again, and he's saying, watch it, this judgment is happening. And then the fourth section starts in chapter 3, starting verses 1 through 7. And Zephaniah turns his attention toward Jerusalem. And he's saying, it's, it's coming for you. I want you to know. I want you to see it happening. Now, you might read the Bible up to this point. or You might be sitting here saying, wait a minute. I thought you were talking about God's love. Hello. All I've heard about so far is, you know, destruction and judgment and all that kind of thing. But the reason why that's so important and the reason why grace is so amazing is because it's set in the context of a holy God. It's set in the context of a God who is so pure and so awesome and mighty and powerful that when He looks upon our sin, it separates us from Him. And so we'll never really understand grace. We'll never appreciate the fullness of the cross until we understand where God is coming from in this. Okay? Because I want you to look now at chapter 3 and verse 8. Okay, chapter 3, verse 8. He says, Therefore, wait for me. Don't you love that? Based on all this, okay, judgment is coming. You've messed up. You've blown it. Yes, he says, Therefore, wait for me. I want us to see then assurance of awakening. Here's God's promise. Here's where God is going with this. For the day will come when I rise up and seize the prey. This is chapter 3, verse 8. For my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, and to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Notice it's important there to see who it's it's on. It's not just the Jews. It's not Israel. It's not Judah. It's everyone. It's the whole earth. Then verse 9. For at that time, I will change the speech of the people to a pure speech, that all of them, all of them, may call on the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. God is setting up this amazing story that has culminated in the cross and in Christ. Remember, all the Old Testament, all the prophets, everybody was pointing towards this focal point of history, which is Jesus on the cross. And He says there, then here it is. I'm, I'm gathering people together. I'm putting history. I'm weaving it together for my great purposes. This assurance of awakening comes out we see it again in the book of ezekiel a new heart i will give you and a new spirit i will put within you i'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful observe all my ordinances this is this promise of god that he's going to do a new work in our hearts and in acts chapter two when when the holy spirit fell down when jesus had left and he said go and wait for me in jerusalem and this this culmination peter preaches this sermon he says it's happening Here it is. Everything that was looked forward to in the past, it's coming right now. And so this assurance of awakening is referred to and culminated in the church. And again, I already touched on this, but it is a pledge to the nations. Notice who's gathered in verse 8. It's the nations. It's not just Israel. It's not just Judah. It's not just the, the chosen people of God. His plan from day one has always been the whole world. By the way, if you get a chance to go to Perspectives, I highly recommend it. It is really, really worthwhile. That plan of God to reach the whole nations, starting clear back in day one. Let me ask you this. We're reading the Old Testament, right? We're reading through God's specific words to God's children, which at the time were just the Jews. How do we think that any of us Gentiles have any claim on any of these verses? Right? I mean, they're written. They're not written to us; they're written in context to someone else. So you say, "Well, how, how is it that it's for us?" Well, it's for us because of the mystery we sang about in one of those songs to be revealed. It's not just for the Jews. Look at Ephesians chapter three, verse six. Here is this mystery that the pledge to the nations is the Gentiles—that's you and me—are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ through the Gospel. Paul, in in 1 Corinthians, in Ephesians, in Romans, goes over and over again to say, God's plan is not minute. It's not small. It's global. It's for the whole world, all people, all aware of all time. And so this idea of of this pledge is to many others. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. You were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of the promise, having no hope and without God. <laughs> that's our place as Gentile. God came and spoke to the Jews, but we get in on it. Part of God's plan from the very beginning. Okay, that's all intro. I mean, I'm mean, i now to my, to my text for this morning. This promise of rejoicing. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. This is an amazing, amazing verse. The Lord your God is in your midst. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. He's going to rejoice over you with singing. You know, I mean, the church is a little uh, unique here in that we're one of the few public places in North American culture that sing, right? Where else do we sing? Take me out to the ball game, I guess. You know, something like that. People kind of half-hearted I was down in Maracanã Stadium in Rio de Janeiro. It seats two hundred thousand soccer fans. Okay, and soccer fans are not like in, in Brazil are not like fans in America. Okay, let me just tell you. And when their team comes on the field, there they go nuts. They sing these songs, they chant, and they wave these enormous flags. That's the kind of singing that they do. My friends, when God sees you, he doesn't go, oh, yay. He is singing. Now, I don't know if this captures your brain at all, that God can sing over you. Again, most of our mindsets is we probably feel God is mildly irritated at us most of the time. But the invitation is for for you to join God in believing that you are singable. <laughs> that, that, that there's something we're singing about in you. Ponder this for a moment. How did God create the world? What did He do? He spoke. Look at the beauty of speaking. Look at the beauty around us in the stars and the moon and the universe and the creation and a little baby. Look at all that. That happened when He spoke. Guys, what happens when He sings? <laughs> I mean, come on, it's so much higher, it's so much love, the the artistic expression, the joy that's flowing out of his heart. He said, let there be light. Boom! And what happened? And he's going to sing. He sings over us. How can this be true? How can this be true? Let's pick apart this this verse. I put it in your notes just so you'd have it right there. (laughs) Notice the Lord your God is with you, God is present. Hey, Dave, will you give... I, I didn't bring my watch. Can you just give me a sign when I got like five minutes? Okay. Because um, I'm sure I'll go ten more. Uh, the Lord your God is with you. So first, first uh, note there is God is present. God is present. I just finished reading a book with my family called Practicing the Presence of God. You know, regardless of how tightly we close our eyes or plug our ears, God is present. You cannot hide. You cannot run. Well, you can run, but you can't hide. This book of Psalms tells us that. Psalm 73, verse 28 says, The nearness of God is my good. So let me ask you today, is the nearness of God good for you? Is that something you just go, Oh, God, I'm so happy you can see every thought. I'm so happy that that you're with me wherever I go. Your eyes go where my eyes go. Your thoughts go where my thoughts go. Is that happy for you? I, I met with a lady at uh, Valley Church who's had a chronic disease for 10 years. She's in pain all the time. She can't come to church. I took her communion one day, and she said, Kurt, I can't explain it to you, but I can tell you, God's presence is with me every day. And we forget that. What Satan wants us to believe is that somehow when you've misstepped or mislooked or misspoke or misthought, that God, yup, I'm turning my eyes away from you. I don't see you. I'm not looking at you. God is with us. You say, no, I I can't believe God's rejoicing over me. God is present with us because I feel like He's so far away. That is a lie from the pit of hell that Satan wants you to believe. He is with us. And this then is where Jesus, Emmanuel, takes on a level of significance that we just can't even comprehend. That God is not just with us in spirit. Jesus came and was with us, Emmanuel, God with us, God present, God in the flesh, so that we could know and experience and touch Him and hear Him. John fourteen nine says, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And so true freedom, true understanding, truly God with us happens in Christ and Christ alone. That's what Ben said last week. That's what's been said every week. That this is not about somehow freedom of, I'm going to earn my reputation. I'm going to become good enough that God's going to be happy with me because of my good works. No, it's because of grace. It's because of Christ. It's because of the cross. Some people might say, well, you know, again, God doesn't really care. Sure, God's with us. God's with us all. You know, kind of like Voltaire, right? God's going to forgive. That's his job, right? Hey, remember the first three chapters of the book of Zephaniah? He is mighty, but He is terrible. He is holy. He is righteous. Alright, so God is present. He's with us. John 14, 9. Oh, that's the verse we're looking at. Anyone who has seen me has seen the fathers. Alright, secondly, God is able. Look at that. He is mighty to save. NASB says, He is victorious Warrior. So God intervenes on our behalf. It's not us saving ourselves. It's God saying, I'm going to step in and do what you could never do for yourself. It's not being able to reform yourself, to help yourself. It's saying, I'm going to give up on myself. I used to have a lady, she'd email me after every Sunday, and she'd say, Kurt, I just can't be good enough. I can't be good enough. I can't be good enough. i say, please give up. Please give up trying to earn your salvation. God has done the work for us in the cross. Look down at verse 17, chapter, uh, uh, sorry, verse, verse 19 in Zephaniah 3. He says, Behold, at that time I will deal with your oppressors. I will deal with every charge against you, every hostile intent that's come your way, every accusation, right, wrong, or indifferent, I'm going to deal with them. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 says, Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. I love that line from Star Wars, Han Solo. I don't know. I can imagine a lot. More than we can imagine according to His power that is at work within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations. God is able to do more for you than you could ever do for yourself. Third, look at this, the next line down. He will take great delight in you. He will exalt over you with joy. The dictionary definition of delight is to take great satisfaction in, to receive joy from. Uh, aside from roaming gunmen in my neighborhood and Shelby, uh, car enthusiast, we have a neighbor behind us who whistles. He whistles when he does his yard. It's so funny cuz my kids are taking piano lessons, then they play things, and then like 2 days later, he'll be working in his yard and I can hear him whistling what the girls were playing. It's, you know, it's a lovely relationship. But this guy whistles all the time. Now let me ask you this. What do you think his yard looks like? Is it full of trash? No, why? He's working. He's joyfully working. He loves what he's doing. This guy's got a showcase yard. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. People stop and like take pictures of his front yard. I mean, it is so amazing. That is God on us. He is taking great delight. He's willing. He's not only able, but he's willing and taking delight in us. Romans chapter 8 verse 31 says this. What then shall we say in response to these things? And again, context of Romans 8 real quick. What is it? It's harsh things against us. It's accusations against us. It's pointing fingers of of guilt. What are we to say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. Will He not also, along with Him, with Christ, graciously give us all things? Oh, the answer is He absolutely will. Number four, God is tender. Ah, this just keeps getting better and better. I'm going to explode. Listen, he will quiet you with his love. The NIV says, in his love, he will no longer rebuke you. This is where he gets quiet. He's he's singing over you, and here's where he gets quiet. And he comes along and he says, it's okay. I understand. I know. I saw it. I paid for it with my son. That's this quiet moment. Remember, he says, I will hide you. The word Zephaniah means God hides. And so what God has done, my friend, is he's taken your guilt, and he's hidden it in Christ, and Christ paid it all. Nothing to make up. No shortage of funds there. Colossians chapter 2 says it's stamped paid in full. So he's quieting you. He's taking you into his arms. And the Bible says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God is tender. And then here's the last one. Number five. God is proud. He will rejoice with singing. When you sing about something, it's because you don't care who knows, who sees, who hears, how bad your singing may be. You just go for it, right? And so God is proud of us. God has your picture on His iPhone, His wallet. He's just... Let me display my work of grace to the whole universe. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7 say this. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. Get this for by grace you've been saved. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ. Get this, purpose clause, verse 7 in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You are on display. You are God's trophy case. You are the ones he loves. You are the ones he's proud of in Christ. Here's the application. God is present He's with you no matter where you go, no matter what you think. He is able to save, not only able, but He is willing. And He longs for you to understand that and come into that relationship with Him. If you're still trying to do it on your own, you're still trying to pay the debt, uh, today is a great day to receive the forgiveness of Christ in Him. And God is proud of you and loves to let you know we are the children of God. I love that song we sang, we are His children. The last question I would have for you in terms of application just is this. God is present. Are you are you present with those around you? Are you engaged with the people that are right in front of your face who, who need you, your kids, uh, your neighbors? Are you able? You're not able to save, but are you looking to others as to how you can serve and encourage and bless? And are you willing then I loved hearing about a work day or our outreach or the kinds of things that are happening where you're saying, this is not just for me, but it's for others as well. God is tender. Are we tender to people around us? And then finally, are we proud of Christ and the name that we bear in Him? Would you you pray with me this morning? Lord God, we thank You so much for the grace and freedom that comes in Christ, for Your invitation To come and to join you in in gladness, in rejoicing, in in the happiness that comes in grace. And to be free from from performance and free from having to, to earn our way into your good graces. We thank you, God, for that we can celebrate in Christ's name.